Welcome to the Leadership Matters Podcast, where we talk matters of leadership because leadership really does matter. Here's your host, Jeremy Albrecht. Hey listeners, welcome to episode 35 of the Leadership Matters Podcast. And let me start by saying, Happy New Year. Uh, I don't think there's ever been a time in my life anyways when I've been so excited to start a brand new year especially with the year that just passed, 2020, and all it had to bring. Uh, I know it was challenging, discouraging, whatever the case may be for so many people. And so I think we're all excited to just have 2020 in the past and looking forward, excited to look forward into what 2021 has to hold. And with that being said, I want to remind you as leaders and maybe just encourage you to uh, to take this time, maybe over the next couple of weeks, to really frame 2021 and decide what what you want out of 2021. That might be through some goal setting. Maybe if you're a spiritual leader, through some prayer and fasting. I always start the year with some prayer and fasting and taking that time to just ground myself in the presence of God and what God would have for me over this next year. We take some time as a family to name our year and speak into what this year would be. And we always have one word and we kind of do that up, do a bit of a design and have it hanging in our house where we can see it and we're reminded of what this year is all about. We've been doing that for quite a few years now. And I just encourage you to do something of that nature. January is always a great time to cast some new vision for your own personal life, but also your family and your leadership. And so whatever that might look like to you, it might mean some goal setting and you can go back to episode 34, December of last year, and you can you can listen to, uh, we got into that a little bit with my guest, Jeff Hillier. We talked about goal setting to now and what that's all about. I just encourage you um, to maybe pick up a new habit. And uh, we've talked about habits and habit stacking and various things. And there's great resources and books about that and how to establish some new disciplines, habits in your own personal life. And I encourage you to do that. January is always a great time to uh, and do something that's attainable. If if I could just say that before we get into today's interview, pick something that you can actually stick with, um, that you can measure, that's that's attainable, um, that you could actually reach. I mean, so many times we pick goals in January that just uh, we drop them by March, April. It's like we've forgotten about it completely because maybe it was a little bit too big for what we can handle. A little bit more, uh, we bit off a little more than we could chew. And so I encourage you to, to be intentional and be wise about the goals that you set for this upcoming year. All right, enough about that. Let's get to today's episode. This is probably one of the most unique, um, the most unique guests we've ever had on the podcast to date. I was actually introduced to this couple through a mutual friend of ours, Pierre, one of my buddies from the hockey community where I coach a local hockey team. He's become a great friend of mine, just an awesome dude, Pierre. Shout outs to him if you're listening. And he introduced me to this fascinating couple, Hank and Tanya from winterdance.com. They run a company called Winterdance Dog Sled Tours. And I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, what does dog sledding have to do with leadership? Well, actually, it has way more than you might have ever imagined. And that's why I'm so excited about this unique interview today. This couple has a fascinating story, how they got started. And uh, I get to have a conversation with Tanya from Winterdance. 
Hank was unavailable at the time. They were at the time of this interview. He was dealing with some power outages and taking care of their 150 dogs. That's right. You heard me correctly. They have 150 huskies in their property up in Halliburton. And so, uh, without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Tanya from Winter Dance Dog Sledding Tours. Tanya, why don't you um, why don't you start just by telling us a little bit about you and Hank and uh, kind of where you guys are from and what Winter Dance is all about, just to get us going here today. Absolutely. Uh, well, an honor to be here, Jeremy. So thank you for inviting us. Uh, Hank and I started Winter Dance, which uh, was a dog sled is a dog sled tour company about twenty one years ago now. Uh, both were working in Guelph. I was an engineer by training, and and Hank's a millwright. And both of us just weren't really loving living in Southern Ontario. We originally grew up on farms and uh, for me, um, just didn't fit into the company that I happened to, to start out with as an engineer. Sure. And so we were looking for options to move to the wilderness. Uh, we got a Husky the first year we got married and fallen in love with her and ended up with seven before we left Guelph and wow. uh, experimented with dog sledding and just loved our dogs and loved being in the wilderness. and friend posed the idea of starting a dog sled tour company and uh you know from buying that one husky and, and reading a book about dog sledding to that suggestion completely changed our entire lives wow. um, 21 years ago we quit our jobs rented out our house and moved to the wilderness to start a business and a dream and a lifestyle and uh it's been quite a ride yeah, no doubt. Um, and I love how you said ride, which is kind of what dog sledding is all about. Kind of, kind of quite a ride. And so, um, Tanya, you said, um, you know, you kind of got your first Husky there while you guys were in Guelph, I think. And, uh, and said somebody had mentioned, you know, kind of almost in passing, even um, you guys should start your own dog sledding. Had you or Hank had any experience, any knowledge of dog sledding before uh, purchasing this first Husky? I think you had told me earlier, you kind of watched Iron Will and been introduced to it, but anything prior to that, like um, in either of your childhoods or any introduction to dog sledding, or this was all brand new? Brand new, didn't know a musher. I don't think either of us had ever even seen a dog team other than, you know, probably on television. Sure. Uh, so we went into this totally blind and our first Husky did everything Husky should do that we didn't know. So, I mean, she ate our couch and she destroyed our carpet and she ran yeah. away and she chased cats. Um, so to understand her, we had frantically got any book into the library we could find on Huskies. And uh, one of those books was Race Across Alaska by Libby Riddles. Okay. And she was the first woman to win the Iditarod in the 1980s. And wow. that was the first we'd ever heard of a Iditarod. And we were just both absolutely smitten with the lure of the North and the culture and the history and the adventure. And yeah, so we were like, man, that's cool. Um, at that point, sure, never even imagined that we would one day run that race. Wow, that's so cool. You mentioned just a moment ago, you said you had never even talked to a musher. Tell our audience, because I'm sure nobody listening to this, maybe, maybe I could be wrong, but probably most, the majority listening to this podcast don't know what a musher is. Now I have a little bit of an idea because you've given me a sneak peek at something we're going to talk about later on that you guys are working on, but talk to our audience, our listeners today for a second. What's a musher? Absolutely. And my apologies, because I forget sometimes in our life, what's not just common knowledge, but uh, a musher is somebody who travels by dog team. So a musher is the lead of uh, the leader of that team. But within that team, you have lead dogs and team dogs and wheel dogs. And um, so, yeah, a musher is a dog sledder and uh, okay. has an incredible relationship with their team that they work with. Wow. 
That's so cool. I love that name too. Um, do you know where that comes from? Maybe not, but why a musher? You know where that originates from? I believe it comes from the French, uh, and, I'm, and I'm not great at French. We, we need our mutual That's friend right. here, here to help yeah, us. That's but, right. That's right. <laughs> um, but yes, exactly. But I believe it's marsh, which is to move and mush, and it's all kind of just transitioned into musher is what somebody once told me. So Okay, okay. Well, let's move right into you. Uh, you mentioned the Iditarod, so let's go there. Um, and talk to us for a second just about what that is, um, how you guys had first heard about it, uh, and what exactly the, the Iditarod is. Absolutely. So the Iditarod is a thousand mile dog sled race across Alaska, um, starts in Anchorage and goes to Nome. It's, uh, there's different stories, but I mean, it, it started in the 70s. Um, I believe it was Alaska's centennial, and they were looking for a way to commemorate everything Alaskan. And dog teams, of course, were so vital to the beginning of Alaska when, when the gold rush hit. And there was a serum run to Nome in 1925 where dog teams actually saved the village of Nome's children by relaying okay. um, serum from where they could get to with train and boat um, to yeah. the town of Nome. Winter. So the Iditarod was born and... Um, First, we'd heard about it was in Libby's book. And when we started Winter Dance, at that point, we were so smitten with dog sledding that it was on the list of, man, it would be really cool to take our dogs and do that. Right. And we figured starting Winter Dance would give us the time for Hank to train because it takes so much time to train for that race yeah. and also the dogs. Uh, and we figured three years, you know, after starting the business, we'd be able to do it. But it actually took us 10. So uh, okay. 2010 saw us at the starting line of the Iditarod. Wow. And, and why, you alluded to it a little bit there, I think, but why specifically were you guys so passionate about entering this specific race? Was it just because of that book, you know, that you had read or what drew you to this specific? Because there's other northern races and uh, we'll talk about one of them here in a little bit that you ended up doing as well. But why, why this idea, like what drew you to that one specifically? The book certainly started our love affair with the Iditarod. And then um, from the time we read the book, you know, over the years, and we would have read the book and I guess that was the mid nineties. So, you know, the internet was just kind of launching. Sure. And, yeah. and I can remember in 97, 98, you know, the internet cafes, I'll take some of your older listeners back to so yeah. go to a cafe, get online. Um, so Hank Iowa. and I used to do that to actually follow, you know, the Iditarod and see which teams were winning and, and read the stories and, so fell in love with the mushers, um, fell in love with the trail and the checkpoints and the remote villages on the race. And okay. so never, because we had this love affair with it, never really looked at any other race. And, and Iditarod is the biggest dog sled race in the world, most okay. famous one. So right. um, it was the goal to get to the Iditarod. Yeah. And you said it took, um, you, you kind of had this mindset that you guys would be able to train and be prepped and ready for this in three years. It ended up taking 10. Um, Talk to us for a moment about some of the reasons maybe why it took a little longer than you had thought. Like what, I mean, thousand miles, that's significant distance. Um, and then compound that on the fact that you're, you're, you've got a team of dogs, you're on a sled, and then the grueling terrain that you're actually going through. I mean, I can't even imagine a thousand miles is long on a good day in a vehicle. Now you're talking by dog in like minus 40, 50 degree weather. Um, Talk to us for a second just about that. What type of training goes into prep for a thousand mile northern race like that? That's got to be significant. 
it is significant and you can't just decide you're going to run the Iditarod and go sign up and run the Iditarod. Yeah. Um, they have uh, three qualifying races that you have to do before you can okay. run Iditarod. Um, and to do those qualifying races, they have rules that you have to do smaller qualifying races. So, you oh, know, wow. even if you had endless money, endless time, um, you would have to have at least years because you have to do 50 and hundred mile races to prove you can, you know, successfully do that and care for sure. your dogs. And then you bump up to, you know, 200 to 300 mile races to prove again, that you have the skills and the capabilities to do it. Right. And then once you've done enough of them, you know, the thousand mile race will say, yes, okay, you can come wow. and um, so a, we didn't know that. So there was three years right there. Okay. Um, and then, you know, you always think business is going to grow faster than you, uh, and sometimes it does. So we figured that three years would give us the resources to do it. And a did cost us about $50,000. So, um, you know, it took us a little bit longer to have the staff in place that Hank could be gone and, and focus sure. for three months on dogs in that race and, and the financial resources to make it happen too. Wow. Oh, that's very significant. Um, and what type of what type of training would Hank go through to uh, to prep for a thousand miles? Like, what are you know even maybe some of his daily habits or routines that would prep him not just uh, mentally but even physically? Like, that's significant. I mean, I was I was reading through some of the material you had sent me, and and even the lack of sleep that takes place on a on a race like that. You're getting an hour two hour nap here, and then boom, you're back out into the minus whatever weather and climbing summits and mountain peaks. And, oh, I, I can't, man, it's just so fascinating. I'm just, I'm so curious um, just as to the type of training he would have to go through personally outside of the dogs, even just him. Absolutely. Um, he actually trains with the dogs. Uh, and a lot okay. of people are surprised when they hear that. So, I mean, he doesn't, you know, go run for an hour a day or anything when he's training the dogs, because the dogs will start off in September and you know, because they're off in the summer, it's too hot for them to work. Sure. Uh, they'll run, you know, three, four miles the first of September. And, and like anybody that hasn't done anything for a few months, they'll be like, Oh, that was a run. Right, um, right. And then gradually we slowly start building that by the time we hit, you know, mid November, early December, they'll be doing 50, 70 mile runs a day and they'll be screaming to go further. So we started with ATV because, of course, there's no snow in Ontario, September, sure. October, early November. Yeah. But once we transition to snow, um, when Hank is on that sled, he is truly a member of that team. So as we say, uh, that's why they created the snowmobile is because you know, man's kind of lazy and, and working with a team of dogs is, is truly working. You're not riding. Um, right. So he's constantly right. paddling with one foot. He ski poles with one arm. So it's an opposite, you know, leg kick, ski pole, leg kick, ski pole. Um, okay. And then when you're climbing hills, I mean, he's out running with those dogs. So as they're conditioning, he's also conditioning. Okay. Okay. Wow. And, and what type of, um, this just came to me as, as you're talking, what type of footwear would he, obviously he's going to need some significant clothing in that to be prepped for the Northern, you know, which is going to be heavier. It's going to weigh him down more. Um, any special training that he does for that when he's out with the dogs to prep him for even the weight he's going to be carrying and the foot, like those big clunky boots, like that's what I'm picturing. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's got moccasins no. on. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> he has both actually. So uh, okay. he does have uh, mucklucks, which are very light, but they don't last up there because I mean, as, as warm as they are and as light as they are, if you get into water, you're in, in huge, huge trouble in mucklucks. So, right, right. um, so no, he wears these big, again, not to plug Cabela's, but they are made by Cabela's and they're a huge Arctic, you know, minus and right. they weigh like two or three pounds each. 
So as much as he doesn't really need them in Ontario, by the time we hit Christmas, he starts training with them just so yeah. that he's physically used to yeah. wearing them. Yeah. And any, um, that's the physical aspect. Um, any type of mental preparation that he does, or even knowing that he's going to be going on little sleep, anything other than drinking all kinds of coffee, um, which, which I was <laughs> noticing in, in, in what you guys have written, um, which I love. I mean, I'm a huge coffee fanatic, so I, I just think that's, that's a bonus of being part of these races. You get lots of good coffee. Um, but uh, any, any type of mental prep or emotional prep that he does to prepare himself for being out there all by yourself? I mean, you're with your dogs, but uh, little human contact other than the checkpoints, I would imagine. Um, any type of mental, emotional prep he does for that? The mental is huge. The mental is really bigger than the physical. Okay. Um, because as he says, you literally will have, you know, your highest high and your lowest low on that trail. And sometimes they can be 10 minutes apart. Um, when you add in the sleep deprivation to that equation, it just magnifies everything a thousandfold. Mm -hmm. So the mindset he works with, I mean, we prepare as much as we can for what that trail is going to throw at them. So, you know, we purposely will train on days that are going to be blizzards or we'll train on days that are going to be the coldest or we'll find some of the windiest trails we can find. Um, so that mindset walk the dog and him have trained in what they are anticipating we're going to encounter in Alaska. In Ontario, you can never model what you're going to get in Alaska, but right, we try to right. get as close as we can. Um, wide open spaces, that's another thing, because when you're running, once you get north of uh, well, about three quarters of the way through the race, I mean, there's no trees, it's tundra. So there, there's nothing, which for our dogs is a big thing, because here we have, you know, wow. wooded forest trails, which is exciting. Yeah. Um, so we, we tried and model in training every condition that the dogs mentally and Hank will have to deal with. Hmm. But then we also try to factor in other than the landscape conditions, what mindset conditions is going to happen. And we work through strategies. If this happens, here's what you're going to do. If this happens, right. here's how you can get out of it. So even when Hank's traveling, I mean, if there's potentially a blizzard, I mean, he's always just watching for, okay, I just left a tree stand there. So if this happens, I can retreat and get back into the tree stand. Right. Always planning for the absolute worst, hoping you don't need it, yeah. but always have something in your mind. So if the worst happens, you know how you're going to deal with it. And that's, that's huge. Right. Um, some other little hacks that we've found, you know, now that we've done six of these races, because um, the first one beat him up pretty bad uh, yeah. in many ways, we'll get into that. But yeah. uh, even before the grand finale, um, just being on your own that much and, and with that much stress, environmental and, and sleep deprivation. So I prepare for him a little booklet that zips in front side of his big outer pocket. Okay. And there's a page for each checkpoint and each section of trail breaks down what's on that trail so that it helps him remember what he's coming up against. Right. But it also has messages from myself and from our children. Um, because wow. as simple as it seems, he's like, when things get really down, literally just opening that book and seeing, I love you, or you can do this, or you've so got this. Um, we're cheering you on dad. Just the smallest little thing can completely shift mindset. Oh, that's powerful. Um, I, I think you talked a, a lot there just about contingency plans, you know, and it's so important for um, even there's so many leaders listening to this, you know, today who here we find ourselves in such uncertain times with COVID and all the implications of that. 
Um, and, uh, you know, having contingency, having backup, and you can't always prepare for everything, obviously. And even a race like that, there's going to be things that you can't fully prep yourself for. Um, but um, having a, you know, being able to plan and, uh, and just uh, even schedule in your training as many adversities and obscurities and obstacles that you can, I think is, is so smart, so helpful. Um, and then just the mental, you're so right, Tanya, in, uh, I know there's been times in my own life where just thinking back to family or a word spoken by one of your kids or a loved one can be so meaningful and, and do exactly what's needed in that moment to get you up and moving again, right? Because that's the most important is, is movement um, and not staying stuck, literally stuck, you know, physically sometimes, but also mentally stuck, you know, in just a, a negative mindset. Um, so I, I think that's, that's great advice. Um, I, I'd love to ask just, you know, even with these races, and maybe you can think of a couple of specific instances, but um, I'm, these races are dangerous, you know, let's, let's, I don't know if there's stats out there, how many have not finished, or maybe even lives that, um, have, have been taken by some of these races before I, I, I can only imagine. Um, but talk to us about maybe a situation or two that Hank's gotten himself in, uh, that's just been dangerous, maybe even life-threatening, um, and, and how he was able to, to get out of those scenarios. Um, and, and what it was that really pulled him out of those. Yeah, gosh, I, my mind's racing with several and um, no musher has ever thankfully passed away on these races. Um, okay. The Yukon Quest on average, 50 to 60% of the teams finish that start. So uh, definitely, wow. you know, it, it, they are challenges. The, yeah. the Adidarat has a higher finish rate. Um, Hank would probably... I'm thinking of two, so I'll tell you one. And if you want to hear the sure. other, feel free okay. to ask Jeremy. Yeah. But um, his second Iditarod, uh, they were in Shack Tulik, which is about three quarters of the way through the race, about 800 miles in. And it had been calm weather when they got into Shack Tulik, and Shack Tulik is an Eskimo village remote. But as they had rested there, a blizzard had blown in. And when you leave Shack Tulik, you have to cross the sea ice of the Bering Sea, and it's a 40 mile run straight across to the other Eskimo village of Koyak. And the time came for the team to leave and the blizzard was just intensifying. And, and one of the elders of the village came up to Hank and Hank, it's already the scariest section of trail because you're running on sea ice and, you know, right. there's open water to your left and the ice over the years has been known to go out and refreeze it. It's just, it's a crazy oh, section man. of trail. And an elder came to Hank and he said, you know, with the wind and the blizzard, he said, there's going to be no trail markers left. Um, he said, it's 40 miles straight across to Koya, straight. He said, the wind is coming from the north. Keep the wind straight in your face and you will get there. But he said, five miles to your left is open seawater. Do not deviate. Keep the wind straight in your face. Wow. And Hank said, you know, he had been scared enough to leave. And he's like, with that message, he's like, I, my anxiety just went through the roof. Yeah. But it was time to go. So he got the dogs ready. And they left the village and they left the village, dropped down on the sea ice. And then they followed the little bit of spit of land at the end of Shack Tulip. And then when they left that land behind, the wind hit them full on the face. And Maverick was leading uh, one of our great, great leaders. And, and Hank said, as soon as they left that land, he said, my fear just went through the roof. Yeah. And the dogs feed off Hank incredibly. I mean, I believe that any team feeds off their leader, but in dogs, you see it instantly. Right. And the dogs could feel Hank's fear. And Maverick said in his mind, if you're that afraid, there's no way I'm taking us any further. 
And so Maverick completely did a 360 with that team and brought them right back into the checkpoint. Now, Hank has a break on this sled, but when he's on ice, I mean, he's 150 pound a person against, yeah. I think the team was 12 strong, so 600 pounds a dog. Wow. Pretty obvious who was going to win. Yeah. Uh, and Maverick just, they refused to go. So they literally spun the team around and they brought them right back into the village. Um, so they stayed there for another four hours. Hank was hoping the storm would let up. It didn't. Dark fell. They were running out of food. And if you accept outside help, you're instantly disqualified. So if okay. they were to finish, they had to go. Um, so again, elders came and, and they, they knew the situation he was in. And they're like, Hank, dogs have been taking people across the stretch of land for decades. He said, your dogs will do it, but you've got to trust them. Wow. Uh, so Hank managed to get his mindset straighter. He got more confidence and he said, okay, guys, we got to do this. And so they left again. And I mean, five hours, six hours later, he started to see a little bit of a light from a lighthouse in Koyuk. And I mean, they'd run through the night, they'd run through the storm. He couldn't even see the dogs and the dogs took him. Yeah. Um, wow. So he trusted the dogs to do what he had trained them to do. And, uh, you know, they got them. Wow. Oh, that is incredible. Um, so many things going through my mind, you know, uh, I feel like I'm there and in, you know, just put, trying to put myself in, in, uh, in Hank's boots there for a second. And just, I could feel the anxiety, even as you're talking and just thinking about all the implications and you've got your dogs, you've also got a family back home. Um, and, uh, wow, that's, that's very significant. Um, but I, I think what you said there really hit me is just, you got to trust your team, right. In moments of adversity and in, in difficult, challenging times, it's why you surround yourself, why it's so important to surround yourself with, with a good team, right. Is this is when the, um, the rubber hits the road, so to speak. Um, it's in moments like this, that you go back and you dwell on, this is why I hired, you know, if you're a business leader, this is why I hired the right people around me. This is why I've selected, handpicked and gone through the application process. And for, you know, a musher, this is why I've chosen these specific dogs for a significant race like this, because I know I've got the right ones and in their proper positions too, right? Um, it's one thing to be on the team, but to be on the right seat on the bus, I think, uh, is a great business analogy, but for the, for our purposes today, the right uh, you know the right position on the dog sled team is so important too. And maybe talk to us just because we're there right now. Talk to us about the positioning of dogs. There's, uh, as I understand it, in in just the research I done in prepping for today. There's you know you've got your leaders, you've got ones that are back closer to the sled, and then the in between. Uh, talk to us about the different positions and the unique role that maybe each of those those team members play on a dog sled team. Absolutely. And when we talk to corporations, we, we dive into those pretty heavy, actually, um, because we do have our lead dogs. And, you know, while Hank is, you know, depending on your analogy, the board of directors, the CEO, um, our lead dogs are, you know, our senior vice presidents that take that team where right. they need to go. Um, brilliant, brilliant animals, driven, passionate, um, serve with such a heart. And as we say to a corporation, if we could drive, you know, the passion and drive that's in a dog team into your organization, nothing you couldn't accomplish, but it's so vital that everybody's in the right role. Not everybody is a lead dog. Um, We have our wheel dogs that run closest to the sled, which are generally your workhorses. No desire to lead because they're like the dogs that are like, tell us what to do and you will get 120% of our effort. Um, we have, you know, kind of the assistant leaders. So your managers, if you were comparing structures that run right behind the leaders, um, they help support the leaders. 
they, you know, potentially will be the next great leaders, but uh, for now they support, they help drive the team, steer the team. And then you have the team dogs in the middle and those dogs are vitally important. Um, so when we build teams in fall training, we literally try dogs in different positions every year, even if a dog is okay. seven or eight years old, because we've had dogs that have no desire to lead for the first half of their life. And all of a sudden they're like, Hey, I actually, I like leading and I'm, I'm kind of right. good at this. Right. Um, so we give dogs every fall, the opportunity to tell us where they resonate and which position they want to fill. Sure. Um, and then once we figure that out, Hank knows those dogs implicitly. Um, we travel, I mean, on average, 2000 miles with the dogs before we would ever even leave for Alaska in any given fall and early winter. Right. And so he knows watching them, which dogs get stressed in conditions, once thrive in which conditions, um, who the cheerleaders on the team are, who the workhorses are, you know, who the worriers are, who they like working with, because they all have personalities that they work best with, that they work worst with. Right. Because if you can put every single team member into the position and working with the people that they thrive with, my gosh, literally that team climbs mountains and, and they do climb mountains. Yeah. Um, so finding the role that every team member fits in perfectly where they can be their best just right. makes the team. Wow, that's so cool. Um, and, and is it, um, as I imagine, is it um, the dog sledding teams that I've seen, you know, you see in the movies or whatever, it, are they always paired up or is there is there, you know, kind of, positions along the link along I don't know what you call that the line of, of dogs but in a team is there positions that are single positions and then some where they're side by side you know doubled up or is there ever a moment where there's three side by side does that ever change and uh and maybe even the uh the mindset behind why why two and not three or or what instead of one is there any thought that goes into that or is that just kind of how it's always been uh, no, I mean, generally for wooded trails, side-by-side -side, uh, works because you don't have a wide trail. So to go three or four wide, um, if you go to the Arctic, you will find, they call it a fan formation where dogs run four or five wide because up there, oh, okay. you know, it's no worries about a tree yeah. trail. Um, so we generally run in twos and twos just, you know, physically support each other because right. they're side by side. So they break okay. trail together. They can lean into each other. Um, but based on the formation of a team, uh, Lily are one of our incredible leaders. Uh, she did prefer to run on her own okay. and she climbed a mountain Eagle summit single lead for most of that climb. Um, and, you know, when she left the tree line in that climb, the wind was so strong on the summit, it actually hit her from the side and rolled her over three times. Wow. And she got up and got lower to the ground and kept climbing. And three times, Hank watched the wind hit her and roll her to her side. Oh, um, wow. And then he went up once the whole team was out of the tree line and, and actually tied himself into the gang line is, is the, the rope that the dogs are all connected to. Okay. Um, and he climbed with her side by side. But to illustrate how every team member is important, I mean, you know, Eagle Summit is a 2,700 foot climb. It's basically 45 degrees or off. It's even a little steeper. And obviously they had to stop regularly and take breaks. And as they would do so, the team would lay down to get out of wind for a rest. Yeah. But what Hank started to notice was Jay, his big wheel dog closest to the sled. As the rest of the team slowed down and started to lay down, Jay would actually brace his legs and he would stand there and hold that 300 pound sled while the rest of the team rested. And then wow. when the team would start to move again, Jay would still obviously walk, but right. he wouldn't be pulled. So he technically was resting while the rest of the team was moving. Wow. So Lily's drive and determination got that team to the top of the mountain, but without Jay doing the work while the rest of the team rested, they would got to the top of the mountain. You know? 
everybody plays a part. Wow. That's fascinating. I'm, I'm sure the, uh, just the lessons, life lessons, leadership lessons that, uh, that you guys get to see even day to day, but also in the midst of these races, is just, I mean, so applicable that, I mean, my mind's going, it's just reeling right now in all the various ways that this applies to leaders, right? Which is the heart of this podcast. And, uh, oh, this is just so cool. I'm so thankful we get to, uh, we get to chat today. Let's go back to the, um, Let's go back to that first Iditarod that you guys were a part of, and uh, and let's let's unpack that because uh, it didn't go as planned, and I don't want to give too much away. Why don't you tell us kind of what happened, and and then maybe some of the difficulties because you went through a bit of a challenging season period of time, especially for Hank there, and uh, and this is where you guys as a team came into play. And, uh, and you really had to rally around Hank and, and help move him forward again. So talk to us about that season. Absolutely. So, gosh, I mean, the Iditarod, we, you know, we were at the starting line 2010. We dreamed of it for, gosh, 13 years probably at that point. And yeah. our children were there, our four children with us, and, and Hank and the dogs, you know, they were off and gone. And the Iditarod is totally remote, so you can't get to it other than flying in. And I did fly in about uh, 250 miles in. I flew in to see Hank and the team, and they were doing amazing. I was so proud of them. And, and I actually relaxed for the first time because I was yeah. so nervous about them. Oh, and then they were about idea. 700 miles in. And uh, my brother flew in to see them. And that was the remote uh, native village of Mulatto. And he flew out and he called me from Unalakleet. And he's like, oh my gosh, Hank and the dogs are amazing. He goes, I have no doubt they're going to finish this race. And so the team was about to leave. We knew they'd be leaving shortly. And all the mushers carry GPS trackers. So fans and and family can follow their progress throughout the race. And so I was sitting online waiting for his tracker to leave Nalato. And all of a sudden, a press release from the Iditarod went up that Hank DeBruin scratches in Nalato, which means he withdrew. And I called my brother and I'm like, are you seeing this? And he's like, there's no way. He said they had to mix up names. Like I I just saw him. There's no way he would have scratched. Yeah. Yeah. And long story short, he'd been about to leave. He had the dogs already and a volunteer had come out of the checkpoint and said, uh, we have a phone call for you. Would you please come in and take it? And being that my brother had just left on a bush plane, he was like, oh my gosh, what if something happened? And so he went and took the phone call and the phone call was the race marshal and the race marshal asked him why he was running so slow, which you know, in his mind, he hadn't been. And the race marshal gave him two choices, either he pull out in that checkpoint, or he'd be allowed to travel another 40 miles to the next checkpoint, and his race would end at that point. And so my husband said, if the race is over, regardless, then why would I ask my dogs to go further? I guess I'm done here. And so 13 years of dreaming, uh, months and months of training, $50,000 investment was literally gone, um, just because of one phone call. Wow. And Hank and the team were 700 miles into the middle of the Alaska wilderness. And uh, that was the end of the, that was the end of the race. Wow. Let me stop you there for a second, Tanya. Just, uh, I'm curious, why did the race marshal call the race? Like, uh, is it because he was the only it's a one good left question. in the race? But... Yeah, and we'll never know for sure. I mean, okay. over the last 24 hours, the teams that were behind Hank had all withdrawn, you know, whether the race marshal made it so or they decided themselves, I don't know. But okay. um, at that moment, Hank was running at the end of the race. And, um, 
you know, now we know, we didn't know at the time in hindsight that this does happen in the Iditarod, that as teams get to the end and, and the race is starting to finish, they, they start cutting teams at the back. Oh, okay. um, but I mean, they have guidelines where you have to be at certain times and, and Hank was within all those guidelines. Right. But he was also a musher from Ontario that they didn't know. And, right. uh, you know, I don't know what was going through his mind, but in his mind, I guess it was the right decision for the race. Okay. So the race went on. They just had kind of cut Hank out of it. Yeah. Wow. They cut the back as right. it gets further along. Exactly. Okay. And yeah, obviously we can all, oh, just, uh, you know, start to understand just the, the devastation to you guys. You, you talked about, you know, the investment you've made financially into this, all the prep that's gone into this. Um, I can't even begin to fathom, you know, how then that just took its toll. So um, bring us up to speed. So he calls the race. So what happens then? You just kind of get a plane to gather up all the dogs and just pull you out of there and bring you back home or what happens next? Yeah, it's a couple steps because um, Unicleet's a small village, so bush planes are all that can fly in. So when I finally got a hold of an official and she confirmed that he had scratched, um, she said, you know, we're trying to get planes because it was late in the day at that point to get them to the next bigger checkpoint tonight. Right. And they did. Um, but, you know, a bit to your mindset, uh, when Hank had gone in for that call, the dogs had been fired up and, and howling and screaming, ready to, to get back on the trail. And his mindset went from, you know, we're running the Iditarod to everything just fell apart in my world. Yeah. And in that space wow. of a five minute phone call, when he went back out to those dogs, they laid down and volunteers told me afterwards, they had to actually carry and, and convince the dogs to come to the airport because the dogs refused to run because of Hank's mindset. Wow. So they flew them forward. He got into, you that night, which is another remote village. And uh, he called me from there and, and I was just like, what happened? And the first thing he said to me, um, when we had started the race, one of the champions at the time had been so kind to Hank and he had come up as we were going to the starting line said, I will see you in Nome, Hank. And Hank's like, you bet, Lance, I'll see you in Nome. Yeah. And the first thing he said to me, he goes, I just let down Lance Mackey. And I said, Hank, you didn't let down anybody. And he goes, yeah. I just let down Lance Mackey. Um, so, you know, like any failure, right? Any, sure. any of your business leaders on here have been through failure. We all have been to chase dreams and, you know, you go from angry to why it happened to rest and so yep. they got Hank flown out in the dogs and and he's just like we just got to get out of Alaska so you know mm. the girls and I flew home and Hank and the boys drove home and they got home the end of March and for the next month uh, my husband that can tackle and take on anything was absolutely lost um, he wouldn't leave our property uh, he split wood and he sat on our porch and he would hardly even talk mm. and I was terrified for him and uh in his mind, he had let us all down. He'd let me down. He'd let our family down. He'd let the dogs down. Um, you know, some of our community had been so amazing and, and helped raise money for the race. And he felt he'd let our whole community down. Our staff had built a Facebook page, which was still pretty new then. And yeah. people from around the world started following. And he felt, he just felt he failed everybody. Wow. And I remember one day, this was about a month into it. And I was like, gosh, like, how am I ever going to get him out of this? And we're sitting on the porch and, and I said, Hank, what if you run the Yukon quest next year, which is a you know, the, the lesser known cousin to the Iditarod. Yeah. And he looked at me and just for a second, there was a spark in his eye. And then he went, we can't afford it. And he was so right. We could not afford it. But I'd seen that spark and I said, we can afford it. And he looked at me again and he goes, honestly. And I said, we can afford it. And in that one second, everything in my husband changed. 
He went from a man that was totally defeated and had nothing to live for to somebody that had a new dream to chase. Hmm. And I, we didn't realize it at the moment, but looking back, that's been one of the biggest lessons that we got out of life and that we teach now is that, you know, if things aren't working for you and if you feel like you failed, it's really just a stepping stone to where you're going. Wow. The faster that you can set a new goal and a new direction to chase, the faster you're going to get out of that horrible spot that just feels like the wow. worst place in the world to be. That's powerful. So powerful. And uh, I, I know there are listeners here today that are listening to this interview who may might be in the midst of a season like that themselves, um, maybe just feeling down, maybe feeling like they've failed. Um, and it's interesting, you know, I, I've done some reading and research even on that whole mindset, right? And I think that's where shame comes in. Um, there's a big difference between guilt and shame. Shame says I am a failure, where guilt says I, I've failed, I've made a mistake, but I'm not a mistake, you know, but shame likes to, shame will kill you, um, literally kill you, you know, if you let it and you allow it to. And I just think it's powerful that um, you were so integral in, in uh, and, and so significant in that situation, Tanya, and just your ability to, uh, to present, you know, kind of dangle the carrot out in front of Hank a little bit, like here's, maybe this is a new dream, a new, something we could go after and chase together. And I just think that speaks to how important it is for us to surround ourselves once again with not only forget the leadership for a second, but good friends and family that believe in us, right. And can help, um, you know, us in the, in some of the most difficult seasons and moments of despair, depression, discouragement, we can ever find ourselves in. And if you haven't gone through something like that yet, if you're listening to this today, um, I'm sure you will at some moment, some point in your life. Um, that's just life. And it, it throws difficult, challenging curveballs our way all the time. And it's so important to lean into those, um, that are strong, uh, my, my own personal life, I've gone through depression and a, a major season of anxiety. And uh, I too, you know, I have an incredible wife and she would speak to me when I didn't believe it myself. She'd say, you know, on my worst days, you know, no reason to get out of bed. She'd say, you're going to make it through this. You're going to make it. And I'm here a testament today to those words because I didn't believe it myself. And it's in those moments, it's so important to have somebody that kind of will speak up for you and say, hey, I know you're not feeling this right now, but I'm telling you, you're going to make it through this. And uh, that's, that's so powerful, Tanya. Um, anything else you want to say on that before we switch gears here a little bit and talk a, a little bit more leadership, but I don't want to cut this off. This is powerful stuff. Yeah, I'll just share one more point. And if, I mean, I've now, as we look back over 20 years, had this happen numerous times, but I honestly had no idea how we were ever going to afford that race. Um, yeah. But what happened that fall once we made the commitment and Hank signed up and, and he didn't know, I, as far as he knew, we were fine financially sure. to make yeah. it. Yeah. The pieces that came together that fall, you know, and, and I know a lot of your group is, is religious, so I, I don't always share this, Jeremy, but yeah. call it the universe, call it God, call it what you want. Um, people literally started showing up in our life that made it possible. And that race wow. ended up costing us nothing out of pocket. You know, a friend ended up getting a big corporate sponsor and, and wow. people that just were so hit by Hank not fault finishing and, and that he was going back again and started just, you know, $20, $100. Like it was crazy, but the money literally came in in the next four months to pay for that race. Hmm. Wow. 
And, and that's often the way life is, right? When, when we have a passion, when we have a dream, um, oftentimes it doesn't mean we're not going to have a work to get there or that, that it won't be challenging at times. But um, I, I think that's so true. I, I've heard so many stories that uh, resonate, you know, with what you're saying. That, that's awesome. Well, Tanya, uh, I want to talk, we've talked a little bit, some of the leadership lessons, but uh, just, I got a, a couple questions um, that are more leadership based. Um, and I know you guys are doing a lot of learning and doors have really opened up for you and you and Hank uh, to speak to corporations. Um, maybe talk to us about that. Just some of the doors that have been opening to you in this world. This is kind of brand new territory for you guys. Uh, and maybe not territory that you ever imagined in your wildest dreams that you'd be, uh, you know, speaking to to major businesses and corporations and their senior executives, you know, about the leadership lessons you've learned from uh, from dog sledding. But talk to us about a few of the doors and then and then go into maybe a little bit just about vision and and how important it is that and you've spoken already a little bit about passion and that desire, that goal but how important it is for the vision that a leader has to the success of that mission or that organization or that team, um, however way it applies. Absolutely. So yeah, after Hank's uh, 2011 Yukon Quest that we're talking about, um, just out of the blue when he finished, we didn't know it, but a, a fan of ours had walked into a supplier's office in a big corporation in Toronto and said, oh my gosh, I know you love dogs. You've got to follow this guy on his journey across Alaska. Yeah. And she had started following his tracker. And that September, she called us and said, uh, you know, I'm VP of HR and I'd love to have you guys come and speak to our, to our senior executive team. And you know, Hank can tackle anything, whether it's, you know, a bear or a moose or take your pick, he'll, he'll sure. go at it full force, but standing in front of a corporation in downtown Toronto on a border, and he's like, no, that is not me. Yeah. Um, but as she said, she's like, you know, we, we, we pay really well and, and maybe it would help towards your next race. So that was enough incentive for Hank to say, okay, we'll try it once. Sure. And so we went and we co-presented and uh, I kind of built the bridges between our world and theirs and, right. and did some exercises. And then Hank gets up and shares his stories, you know, that uh, put people in, in his world. And right. it went really, really well. I mean, you know, we finished and, and the CEO had got up at the time and kind of broke the ice when Hank was nervous. And that was when blackberries were the thing. It said, I'll trade, my, trade you my blackberry for that custom knife you've got on your back. <laughs> Anyway, we, we had an awesome time and they, oh, they were so cool. kind to give us a standing ovation and have us come back six or seven times since. But, wow. um, you know, vision is absolutely everything. Um, mindset, vision, I, I kind of see them partially as the same thing because when, when Hank's mindset and his vision is dialed in and, and 100% clear, those dogs will run on fire. And I literally can be a thousand miles away from him and watch his tracker, knowing the landscape and the, the weather he's yeah. traveling through and yeah. what Hank's mindset is. Um, because if his mindset is awesome, those, that team is moving smooth and strong. Right. If his mindset is questioning or he's lost his clarity, I literally will see that team slow down and they're traveling by three or four miles an hour. Um, because wow. as a leader sets the tone for their, their team. Right. Um, and even though they, they may think that their mindset is strong, as Hank always says, I try to act really strong for the dogs, even when I'm questioning, yeah. there's no act, you know, your mindset resonates with your team. They may not realize they feel it, but they feel it. Yeah. Um, the best race Hank ever had, he just was having so much fun and on fire and he knew what his goal was. And my gosh, those dogs ran like everybody that watched it. That's not possible. Those dogs just did what they did. 
um, but it's because their leader was on fire. He believed yeah. in them so much and what they could accomplish. So when we start a thousand mile race, a lot of people say, how do you run a thousand mile race? And as we say, if all you envisioned was the entire thousand mile race, there's no way you would ever finish it because it's just too overwhelming. Right. So what we do is we break it down. Um, so when things are pretty good, we break it down into 50 mile chunks. And when things are really bad, we might break it down in, let's just get to that tree. That's a hundred meters down the trail. Let's just get to that next rock. We can see because you can get to the next rock. That's only going to take you five or 10 minutes. I can do that. You get to that rock. Well, we can go another five or 10 minutes more. You got to chunk things down. And that's Mm. how Hank deals with the biggest challenges he faces is just chunking them down to, okay, here's what I can do right now. But when you keep doing what you can do right now, when you look back in 10 or 12 days, you've actually traveled a thousand miles and the biggest challenges ahead of you or behind you. Wow. That's insightful. That is so helpful. Um, We've talked about, you know, similar things on this podcast before, but the way you explained it was just, you just simplified it for everyone. Um, When you've got this massive target ahead that seems overwhelming and, you know, even undoable at at moments to bite size, right? Um, It's like the old, uh, I don't know if it's a, you know, a uh, if it originated by a joke or, or an old folk tale or whatever, but how do you eat an elephant, right? One bite at a time <laughs> yes. um, is, is kind of how it goes. But uh, no, that's, that's super helpful and insightful. You mentioned passion there, Tanya. Um, and I read recently, I think I was reading a, a leadership book and um, the writer had said this statement that I never forgot. He said, the most effective leaders don't have jobs. They have a passion. Um, the most effective organizations, the most effective businesses, you know, um, how much does passion have to do with completing a, you know, a feat like a thousand mile race? How much of it has to do with passion, do you think? I would say almost all of it, because if you're not passionate about what you're doing when things get tough, and my gosh, they're going to get tough in a thousand mile race across Alaska or the Yukon somewhere, you're never going to finish. Um, Mm. if you don't have a big enough driving why to why you're doing something and it gets tough, there's not enough skin in the game to keep going. So passion is everything. Um, we wouldn't have got through 21 years of business without passion because there's way too many challenges that without the passion, we would have, you know, it would have been way easier to just say enough, we're done. (laughs) Let's just go get it done. Um, I can't imagine how passion isn't the most vital ingredient in any organization or in any team. Hmm. Oh, that's good. That's so good. You, you mentioned the challenges, you know, over the past 21 years in business, you guys have set up this, this business called Winter Dance Dog Sled Tours. Um, you're there in Halliburton. Um, we didn't really go into it, take a deep dive into it, but what exactly do you guys do there at Winter Dance? Um, and, and just talk to us a little bit about building this business, this whole other side. Yes, we've talked about the races and we'll get back to that in a second. Um, to finish off what happened in the end with the Iditarod. But um, just go into the whole idea of winter dance. First of all, talk to us about the name. Where'd the name come from? And then what exactly do you guys do there at winter dance? 
For sure. The name, when we started Wonder Dance, we just started playing around with words and, you know, anything to do with winter and dogs and snow. And um, I think it was Hank, actually, that just, you know, we had winter and trails and fun. And anyway, the words of Winter Dance came together and just were like, oh, yeah, that's it. Uh, And ironically, then we found out there was a book actually named Winter Dance that was about running dogs. So everyone thinks it came from that, but it it didn't. It just was kind of coincidental. So what we do with our our Huskies, um, you know, we love dog sledding so much and everywhere we would take them when we were in southern Ontario people would be like oh like we have family coming from Australia or England like where could they go dog sledding we're like no idea um so that's what we now do we allow people to experience what it's like to travel through the wilderness with a team of dogs and wow. uh two hours half day full day we do a nighttime run okay. um, and we literally welcome guests from around the world it, it blows our mind you know 20 years later that people literally fly in we have a map every year. Gosh, knows yeah. this year we won't, but um, where people put their pin where they've come from. And, okay. and at the end of every season, we literally have people from, you know, every continent, you know, like many countries around the world. So it's it's very humbling that uh, we get to share something we're so passionate about with literally guests from around the world. Every yeah. And where, where's the, I'm just curious, where's the furthest somebody's come from and, and come to winter dance and experience what you guys do? Oh gosh, the furthest. Uh I honestly, I mean, we have a ton of Australian and New Zealand guests every okay. winter, which wow. I imagine geographically yeah. are probably yeah. the furthest from us. Um, but the one that kind of blew our mind most, that was two or three winters ago. Now we had a, a gentleman from uh, Japan fly in with his daughter. And I didn't know it at the time until he was at the trailhead, but it was his Christmas present to her. Okay. And they, she was eight and they flew in Christmas day and came up to us boxing day. And then they flew back to Japan the next day. So, I mean, a lot of our guests will fly into Canada, but you know, like they plan a whole week around sure. their yeah. dog sledding, do Niagara Falls and everything. But he literally just flew in from Japan to take her dog sledding and then went home. So that one was probably one of the wildest yeah. stories we've had. Wow. And, and how would people, the average person that comes to winter dance and, and even these people internationally that travel there and, and come experience what you guys do, how would the, how would they hear about it? Yeah. I mean, Google is huge. Of course, TripAdvisor has become bigger all the time okay. um, right. as our views have grown on that. Uh, and then we've been very blessed to have a lot of media attention over the years. Um, people that have right. done stories, you know, from the London sun to CNN and New York times and just about, all major outlets wow. in Canada. So I think there's been uh, Brussels, there's been three or four flight magazines that have put us in. So we've been very lucky with word yeah. of mouth through PR that uh, a lot of people have heard about us that way too. So, sure. and then the races, you know, people get right. hooked on the races right. and Hank and the team story. So, yeah. That's so cool. Okay. Let's go back to the Iditarod, you know, so that first one you, you guys did, a number of years ago, uh, didn't end the way you guys had pictured, had imagined. Um, after that, you know, you kind of, you know, Hank, you guys rallied the troops, so to speak, um, comes out of this depression, this discouragement, um, and just massive letdown, him feeling like he's let everyone down. Um, you discover this Yukon quest, he goes, he completes that another, you know, and I, I don't want to just bypass that it makes it sound like that wasn't significant. That's still he, another thousand mile race up in the Yukon. So, um, let's understand that this still had it, it's all its own set of challenges and significant, um, details to that race which um, you outline and something that's going to be coming um, in, in the next few months um, but let's let's fast track after that Yukon quest 
how long was it after that that you guys um, had decided, okay, let's let's take another um, another let's have another go at this Iditarod? <laughs> I think it was literally within seconds of Hank crossing the finish line of the Yukon Quest. Um, I remember his words. He's like, "We have unfinished business on that Iditarod Trail." Oh. Uh, so yeah, as soon as that race was complete and in his mind, he had proved to himself that, you know, he had what it took, the dogs right. had what it took. Right. Um, it was time to go back and prove on the Iditarod trail. They had what it took. So the next year saw us back, uh, the finish starting line and, and ultimately at the finish line of the, of the Iditarod, uh, that March and myself and our four children, I'll never forget that we're there at the finish line and, um, uh, they were probably about 10 miles out from the finish line and the, the First Nations family that was billeting us said, we can drive you closer to see them coming. And I was like, that would be amazing. And um, Dustin would have been, he's our second child. He would have been about 10 at the time. And the team was a couple miles away from us across the tundra and they couldn't see us. Right. And he's like, mom, can I just go a bit closer to take a picture? And I'm like, just a bit, bud, because we don't want to get too close. We don't want the dogs to get distracted and think this is the finish line because the dogs hadn't seen us in days. And right. the little bugger took off running across the tundra as fast <laughs> as he could go. And Hank tells the story that he's like, I saw this person running across the tundra and was like, what is somebody running across the tundra in the middle of nowhere? Yeah. And the dogs realized it was Dustin and their tails went up and they were happy. And Hank said, literally, he was at the dogs before it even registered. He's like, oh my gosh, this is my son. Yeah. And I have this beautiful picture of the two of them embracing, you know, oh, five miles, so cool. 10 miles before the finish line. And then uh, we were all there at the finish line for them. Wow. So um, it was a pretty special, special moment for sure. No doubt. No doubt. Tanya, what would you say? So he completes that I did a rod, kind of that goal, that, you know, long time goal has been achieved, been accomplished. Um, what's the most important aspect when working with a team to accomplish something so significant? If you could, you know, drill it all down. We've talked about so many things, mindset. We've talked about, you know, uh, all types of things, overcoming adversity. But if you had to hone in on one, in, in really accomplishing something significant in your life or in your business or whatever you're leading, um, what would you say to listeners today? You know, if you just kept this in mind, this would really go a long way. Absolutely, 100% commitment. Um, okay. No questioning, um, you know, it's done whatever it takes. Uh, we'll do whatever it takes because once we set that goal, it's like, we are going to do this race regardless of what it takes. Right. And everything seems to pivot around that from the mindset mm. to the support that you need to get to it. Um, and it doesn't always happen on your schedule. You know? sure. yeah. um, what, I, I'm not great at Bible. This is more yours, but I mean, you know, it's God's schedule, not yours. Right. Yeah, that's uh, good. Wow. But the commitment, if you're a hundred percent committed and not open to any other options, and this is going to happen. And I, I think, um, you know, think and grow rich, right. That wonderful book. It's all about yeah. the commitment and mindset, right. No other options. Yeah. Um, that's been the biggest ingredient to both our race success and our business success. Just not allowing any other options. We're in the boats. It's done deal. We're in the boats. Commitment. I love that. Um, something that uh, I hold as a personal value in my own life and leadership commitment. And it, it really, you're right. It goes a long way. Um, and uh, I, I think, yeah, I think that's so true. Hank um, and, and Tanya, both your, your, the story of both of you and how you got into this and all you've accomplished and overcome. And we didn't even get into the half of it with the business and, and various things you've 
Um, you had told me in an earlier uh, phone chat that we had just a, a little bit about that, you know, showing up to the property up there in Halliburton and things were supposed to be done and finished and they weren't and you had kids on the way and kind of homeless um, and all of that. Just such an inspiration. I mean, all of it. And, um, and especially to our, to our, our listeners today. Uh, I wanted to ask you this before we go today. We're going to wrap this up in a couple minutes here. But what inspires you guys to do what you do each day? Um, I, I, again, I was reading the other day just about you can't fully inspire somebody else or other people until you're first inspired yourself. And I know you guys are inspired because I sit here on the other end of this call inspired by what you do, what you've overcome. And so, but you can't do that unless you're first inspired yourself. So I, I wanted to ask you guys, like, what inspires you each day um, to get up in the morning and to do what you do each and every day? There's a couple things. I mean, our dogs inspire us every single day. You know, the what they bring to life, their joy, their passion. Um, you can't be around them and not feel joy and passion and excitement yourself. Um, as, as we say, if you're in a bad mood and you walk into that kennel, it can't last very long because the dogs uh, will pivot your mood instantly. Sure. Um, so that that's a big part, you know, what our dogs bring to us, but also our commitment to them um, because our commitment to them is for their life. You know, that was our agreement 22 years ago when we got into this, no matter how big our husky family got, our commitment to them was for life. Wow. Uh, and then getting to share this with people from around the world, is, it's now our lifestyle and we sometimes forget um, how unique it is. But when we welcome people and, and we get to welcome so many amazing people, whether they have, you know, they're paraplegics and in a wheelchair blind or a family that's just lost a child. I mean, there's been so many stories over the 20 years of people that just literally their stories move us to tears. Wow. Um, and to get to share something that to them is an experience of a lifetime. Uh, there's no words to put into how powerful that is to be able to give people something so special. Hmm. Uh, so that moves us. And then, you know, as we, if we've pivoted into the speaking side, um, just impacting people and sharing messages that, you know, we get messages back now that people have started a business because of hearing us and my God, be able to give to people in that way to fashion to live their own life. Is there any greater gift? Wow. Oh, that's so cool. Um, how, how many people would you say you just touched on some of the unique stories you've been able to be a part of and hear of as, uh, you know, people that would come out there and, and visit Winter Dance? How many people roughly on average each year? Obviously, this year is a little different. Um, but how many people on average over the past few years have you been seeing come to Winter Dance each season? Yeah, we've, we've kind of been at the same size for the last decade, and, and it would be around 2,500 to 3,000 people that we welcome every winter. So, um, yeah, and, you know, from proposals to weddings to, you know, it runs oh, the gamuts and, and right up yeah. to, you know, making crazy music videos with celebrities. And there's been just wild no stuff. Way. But, um, you know, if I, I left with a message for your audience at all, Jeremy, it would be about fear, because I, I just know so many people are living in fear and uncertainty right now. And and, and gosh knows we've had our, our moments of fear and uncertainty around what this winter will be. And, and if an accountant would look at our books over 20 years and they were also understood psychology, they could look at our books and pinpoint where we were in the biggest fear because those are the years that we didn't grow. Um, and fear can stop us in our tracks so mm. fast when we're fearful. 
But in all honesty, and, and Hank sees this on the trail, if he's the most afraid when things get the worst, fear is certain death. If, if you stop at certain death, if you're in minus 40 and you stop or you're in a blizzard and you stop, right. it's not going to end well. And it's the same yeah. in business. If you stop, you're not going to get out of it. You can't stop. You got to pivot. You got to see what you can do because there's always something you can do. Hmm. Um, and, you know, our friends in business that are thriving right now are at least not fearful. It's because they're pivoting their businesses and they're finding new ways to serve their clients and their community and they're growing and their yeah. teams aren't afraid. So hence their teams are still being creative and are coming up with new ideas. So if I can leave, you know, your audience with anyone, if you're in fear, you need to find something to chase and a new way to look at things because that's that's the worst place to be and will hurt you the you know the most in the long run. Well, that's gold right there. Um, thank you for uh, for leaving us with that, Tanya. I think yeah, we we have some some business leaders listening, but probably the greater percentage is is church leaders. And I think often when it comes to churches not being able to meet uh, amidst this COVID stuff and this pandemic and. Uh, I think you're so right. Um, you can't stop. We've just got to readjust, pivot, you know, and some of us are so sick of hearing that word pivot. Um, we hear it in the press and the news and everything else, but it's true. We, we really do have to keep moving and keep, you know, creatively thinking. I think that's what was so cool at the very outset of this pandemic back in March was that leaders were all getting innovative. They had to, there was no other choice, right? Everyone had to innovate and create new ways of, of, of doing things. And then we kind of settled into the rhythm of this a little bit more and the creativity stopped and we just kind of, many leaders began to sit and wait for this to just be over to resume our way, you know, that we had previously done things. And uh, that is so, such a scary spot to be um, when we stop moving and we just kind of sit and wait for things to, uh, to go back. Because, uh, you know, as been said multiple times now, all sorts of various contexts, I don't know that we are going back. It's a new normal and we've got to pivot. We've got to figure out new ways of, of, uh, of doing things that we once did. And maybe, you know, in some cases, just totally turning things upside down and getting super creative. Um, and, and we will, I, I think, uh, leaders are resilient and you guys, if there's one thing about your story that, that's, that shines, I would say it's resiliency and getting back up and moving so many times, so many instances in your life and through these races, um, you've talked about fear, you've talked commitment, resiliency. There's so many other words that kind of describe your journey. And, uh, I'm just so thankful that we got the opportunity to do this today. Before we go, Tanya, where's the easiest place for listeners to connect with you or Hank online? Where can they find you if they wanted to know more about your, your story about winter dance or, or what you, or, or maybe even go up there and experience what you guys do? How could they find you? For sure. Winterdance.com and we have social media, but winterdance.com, you can find everything you need from right there. So that's the easiest place to look for us. Awesome. And Tanya, um, you guys, you guys have a, here's kind of what we've been saving. Uh, I want to give a little plug here, a shout out. You sent me a PDF copy of your upcoming book. You guys have written this book. It is fascinating. You told me to read chapters one and 15. I think it was to prep for this interview today. Um, I, I read well beyond that because I, I honestly, you know, and I, I don't say this, you know, just to uh, to pump your tires. Uh, I couldn't put it down. It was just the the stories of because you get right into the race. You know, Hank really gets into the um, 
to being in the midst of those races and what it was like from checkpoint to checkpoint and climbing Eagle Summit. And uh, there was another one in there after that, that he wasn't expecting to be difficult. And it was, and I don't want to give too much away, but you need to pick up this book. Um, I think uh, the, the, the digital copy will already be online. You can find it at Amazon at the time that this uh, interview is, is posted and live. You can find, you can pick that up there. Um, and the, there's a paperback, I believe, that will be coming uh, a month from now or so from the time that this podcast goes live. So, uh, and, and we'll give you up, you can, you can search our Leadership Matters podcast and we'll actually give you insight as to where you can pick that up, where you can find that once that's up and available. So very exciting. Um, any other, before we go today, Tanya, any other races upcoming that you guys are thinking about that you want to kind of uh, promote or spill the news that you're prepping for something? What's, what are you guys up to these days? For sure. Uh, I mean, there's really no races running this year. Um, Hank's got a new team. So the, that core team that did 6,000 mile races with him, they're all kind of 13 years old. So they're, wow. they're semi-retired. Okay. Um, but he's got a whole bunch of young guys that he's so excited to uh, to start working up. And and he would love to run at least one more Diderot and one more Yukon Quest in the next couple of years. So that's, wow. that's the goal once the world kind of writes sure. itself a little bit sure. from this crazy yeah. 2020. Wild. Well, I can't thank you enough, Tanya, and please express our thanks to Hank um, as well. You're welcome. And uh, this has been so rich, so good. Our pleasure, truly. And uh, all the best for 2021 ahead to all of your audience, Jeremy. Wow, what a fascinating interview with Tanya today. I just thoroughly enjoyed that so much, just learning uh, their story and just how they got to where they are today through setbacks and challenges and and, and, and dreaming and seeing their dreams come to be reality. Just so fascinating. I really hope that you enjoyed it and you learned something today. If you'd like to learn more about what they do, www.winterdance.com. You can find out about dog sledding. And if you'd like to do a two-hour trial of try out dog sledding or a half day or full day or overnight trips, they do it all. You can also find their resources. The book uh, that we were talking about at the end of that podcast is called Journey of a Thousand Miles. You can find it on their website. You can find their older book, I Did a Raw Dreamer. I have that book. Tanya gifted it to me, and I've just been enjoying reading through their stories so much. Hey, if you would do us a favor uh, as we wrap up this episode, I just want to remind you if, you, if you would go to iTunes and leave a review or a five-star rating, the reason we ask for that is it really does spread the word of this Leadership Matters podcast, and that's the whole intent is to help you lead better. We really exist because we believe that leadership matters. And so that's why we talk about significant matters of leadership on this podcast. And so if you would take some time, if you enjoyed this, I know we've had some comments in the past about last month's episode and just how much people appreciated it. Um, if you really appreciate it, go ahead and share it on your social media. Leave us a review, a star rating would, would just be so helpful. And so if you do that, that would be great. All right, that's a wrap. We'll be back next month, February, with a brand new episode uh, where we talk a different matter of leadership because your leadership really does matter. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Leadership Matters Podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast, why don't you take a moment and subscribe on iTunes to ensure you never miss another episode. Until next time, remember your leadership matters.